the year was 627 BC and the people of Judah were caught in a vice. They were uh, surrounded by hostile neighbors, felt vulnerable, and so they tried to choose sides in an escalating geopolitical drama. But they weren't good, good at picking winners. In fact, they kept picking wrong. But from God's perspective, that threat was not the most pressing issue. His primary concern was that the nation was a mess from the inside out. They were led by wicked, incompetent rulers. They were filled with rebellious, unjust people. And to make everything worse, everyone acted as if nothing was wrong. So God decided he needed to do something to shake things up, to tell folks what he thought of the idolatry, the social injustice, and the empty religious ritualism. And his choice was a man named Jeremiah. Jeremiah was not the obvious choice. First of all, he was young. He was very young. Many scholars think that he was in his early 20s, although he could have been as young as, say, 17 or 18 years old. And he really didn't want the job. In fact, if he could have avoided it, he would have. In many ways, this gentle, tender-hearted man was temperamentally unsuited for what God had for him to do, to confront the people with their sin and to warn them of impending danger. But God saw something in Jeremiah he thought he could work with. So for the next 40 years, they were a team. That's not to say that Jeremiah didn't question, even argue with God, but ultimately he did what he wanted, even though it wasn't easy. He was so gripped by God that he admitted he couldn't keep quiet. He said, his word is my, in my heart is like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. We know what we know of Jeremiah from the book in the Hebrew Bible that bears his name. And I'm going to warn you up front, it's not an easy book. For one, by word count alone, it is the longest book in the Bible. It's also not organized chronologically, which if you read it will frustrate you because you don't know kind of where, what things are going on. It can be confusing. And yet, it is a mesmerizing book. In the last three years, I've read through Jeremiah four times, and now I'm on my fifth. It has dramatic stories with plot twists and turns. It uses vivid language with colorful metaphors and interesting object lessons. But most interesting to me is the rich psychological and spiritual insights we have into a complex and fascinating man. Jeremiah is perhaps the most transparent and authentic and vulnerable character that we find in the Bible. For the next 11 weeks, we're going to look at some of the most important sections of this very old but surprisingly relevant book. We won't look at all of it, but we'll get a flavor for what's going on. Later today, I want to tell you the story of how God recruited Jeremiah for the job that he had. But first, I want to talk about the role of a prophet, this vague and somewhat distracting or even uh, uh, confusing role that existed in the life of the nation of Israel. So who were prophets? What did they do and why do we need them? Well, who are they and what did they do? First of all, we often have the idea that prophets are people who predict the future. And sometimes they do. Jeremiah did make some predictions about the future. In fact, the fact that his predictions came true made some people pay attention. But that's not the main job of a prophet. A famous scholar once said that prophets know what time it is. He's not talking about chronological time. What he means is that they know God intimately. They see the blind spots in the culture so well that they're able to step back and see things the way that God sees them with crystal clear clarity. So when a prophet sees something that's wrong, whether it's sins or lies or injustice, they speak up. They point out errors in the world, bad habits and faulty assumptions. They point out complacency and apathy, misplaced fears and false hopes. 
But that makes prophets often appear cranky. They can annoy. They can pester us and try to shake us out of our apathy. A friend of mine says that if prophets were body parts, they'd be elbows. They are not cuddly personalities. At times, prophets seem all doom and gloom. But as we'll see from Jeremiah, they also have a vision of what can be possible, of the life that we truly all want to live if we could just see it. For all their crankiness, prophets really do care about people. That's why they often comfort the afflicted, even while they also are afflicting the comfortable. But prophets are impatient people. They're as upset with indifference as they are with outright injustice. Where most of us see a single act of injustice, whether it's a business that cheats or someone who exploits the poor, we think that's too bad. But to a prophet, that is a disaster, an outrage against God. They know that the wrongs don't become right on their own, that injustice must be called out and action has to be taken or the status quo will prevail. Prophets are not happy until things are put right. So they take great joy when even one person finds justice. So why do we need prophets? Well, we need, they needed them in their day and we need them in ours because if there aren't at least a few of us with the insight to see things in our world that need to be fixed, whether it's evil, or injustice, think people will get hurt. And who gets hurt? Well, we do when we fail to see the self-destructive patterns in our lives. And most importantly, the vulnerable among us are the ones who suffer, the poor and women and children and immigrants, those who lack resources and political power. And that's the sort of job that God had for Jeremiah. Now, the story of God's relationship with Jeremiah begins in Jeremiah chapter 1. And with verse 4, if you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 1134, page 1134. Uh, the words will also be on the screen. But here's how God and Jeremiah got acquainted. Verse 4, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So what's God getting, trying to get through to Jeremiah here? Well, just in case Jeremiah thought he was selected for this job because he was somehow the brightest and the best, God says, no, you're not special. This was purely my idea. Now, even though it's God's idea, he doesn't force Jeremiah to take the job. Jeremiah still has to say yes. He has to be willing to do what God asks. But the fact that he has chosen is all on God. By the way, I, I would imagine that it's unlikely that any of you have experienced anything close to what Jeremiah experienced, nothing so dramatic. I certainly haven't, but we know from the Bible that God has, has things for each one of us to do, has something for each one of us to do. Now, it may be more generic. We have much more than Jeremiah had. We have, for example, the stories of Jesus, the example of his life, his teaching. And there are some basic things that Jesus tells us to do, to care for the poor, to take care of the hurting, to love others, even our enemies, to work for peace whenever we can, to live righteous lives. And we too need to say yes to Jesus and do what he asks us to do. Now, because what God asked Jeremiah to do was very challenging, Jeremiah felt overwhelmed. Here's his reaction. Sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I'm too young. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. You must go everywhere I send you and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Now, one of the features of the book of Jeremiah is conversations between God and Jeremiah. Fairly regularly, Jeremiah asks God questions. He tells him his doubts, even argues with him. And here he bluntly tells God that he's got the wrong guy. For one, he's too young. No one's going to listen to him. 
Why don't you go find somebody else who's a bit older with better credentials? But God says, no, you're not too young. You're just the right guy. Now go and tell people what I want you to tell them. And don't be afraid, by the way, which is exactly the reaction all of us would have, to be afraid. But God says, I am with you, and if you get into trouble, I'll rescue you. And Jeremiah isn't the first person in the Bible to hear God say that. There are probably a dozen or more examples in the Bible of people who God asks to do something, and their reaction is fear. The one promise that Jeremiah needs is the one that God gives him, that he will be with him and that he will rescue him. Now, in the 40 years that Jeremiah acted as God's press secretary, he will be disowned by his family, arrested, beaten, and imprisoned, threatened with death, cheated by a relative, and spend a fair amount of his time hiding from those who want to take his life. But God did watch over him, rescuing him repeatedly from some frightening circumstances. At this point, God does something symbolic. In verse 9, it says, The Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. Now, what he's doing here is giving him a symbol that he has empowered him, that he's, he's going to be a spokesperson and he's going to touch him in a way that he'll be able to speak on God's behalf. Now, I will tell you that what happened here is often misunderstood. It's as if some people think that God sent Jeremiah a set of, you know, kind of embedded a few MP3 files in his brain so he could just talk and move his lips and say exactly what God wants to say. But Jeremiah is much more than a microphone. He does speak to God. He does tell God or tell the people what God wants to hear. But God doesn't override his personality. The words are Jeremiah's and they're inspired by God. So what does God want Jeremiah to say? We're going to talk more in depth about that next week, but let me just tell you that he gives a hint here. Verse 10. He says, See today I appoint you over the nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Now, if Jeremiah wasn't overwhelmed already, he is now, because the message he's to tell to the people here is not one that they want to hear. It is not inspirational. It is not all positivity. Instead, he tells, uh, he tells Jeremiah that what God intends to do is to dismantle the political and religious structures in the land. That's kind of a drain-the-swamp uh, 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 job. And yet, as negative as it seems, he also hints that there's going to be some hope. He says to build and to plant. So one day, there'll be a new beginning. But much of what Jeremiah will say is negative. And then God gives Jeremiah two metaphors that foreshadow what he wants him to say. And the first is an almond tree. I'm not going to read this section, but if you can imagine um, Jeremiah seeing a vision of or actually seeing a physical almond branch. And what God is doing here is using uh, a word play in Hebrew. The word for almond and the word for to watch are very similar. They sound almost the same. And the significance here that he wants to convey to Jeremiah is God will keep his promises. So I'm going to keep my promises to you. The second image is a little clearer, at least to us, and that is a boiling pot. Now, imagine a boiling pot of stew that's perhaps propped up on some rocks over an open fire, but it's tilting, and it's threatening to spill its contents on anyone who happens to be nearby. The symbolism, the symbolism here is, uh, this dreaded, is a dreaded image throughout the book, and it's that of a foreign military power who attacks Judah from the north destroys Jerusalem and carries off the people. Here's how it's described to Jeremiah. The Lord said, From the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I'm about to summon all the people of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. 
They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgment on the people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshiping what their hands have made. So then he tells Jeremiah in verse 17, get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Don't be terrified by them or I will terrify you before them. Now, all this, so this is, he's saying all this is coming, but don't shrink back from what I'm about to say. Um, I'll tell you to say. He said today, verse 18, I have made you like a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. Verse 19, they will fight against you, but not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. So he uses these images of a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall. And what God wants him to understand is that the job's not going to be easy, but I will strengthen you. I'll make you strong enough to withstand whatever you face, and I'll deliver you in times of trouble. And he did. For the next 40 years until Israel fell to the Babylonians in 587 B.C., Jeremiah remained faithful to God, and God took care of him. Now, despite the supernatural way that God recruited him, I mean, you can just imagine, that'd be the most amazing headhunter call in history. It didn't mean that he had an easy time of it. And he was reluctant. Later, he'd grow more confident about what God wanted him to say, but he was never fully sure of himself. But it's hard to criticize Jeremiah. After all, God said, I'll tell you what to say, but they're not going to listen. That's what, by the way, I think parents of teenagers often feel like. You say what you want to say forever and they don't listen. Imagine doing that for 40 straight years because that's what Jeremiah did. But God says, I will be with you and take care of you. There's a lesson here for us and that is that being in the will of God and doing what he asks us to do doesn't automatically equate with a comfortable life or career success. In fact, it's quite possible it might be the opposite that's true. We may face great difficulties precisely because we are living out our faith in the ways that God asks us to. Following Jesus does not mean that our lives will be easy, that we'll have health and wealth and success, but it's an invitation to take up our cross and follow him. And we all have our own objections. I'm not trained, I'm too busy, I don't have the skills and resources. But as he did with Jeremiah, God says to us, listen, I'm gonna sweep away all your excuses. It reminds us that he will take care of us if we do what he's asked us to do. He dispels our fears and takes care of us. In the weeks to come, we're going to take a much closer look at Jeremiah. We'll look at the message he gave us next week, the stump speech that he gave over and over and over again, unfortunately to little effect. But in the time we have left, I want to talk about what I think all of this means to us. And the first thing is I want to address a question some of you might have, and that is, do we have prophets today? Well, maybe not biblical prophets like Jeremiah, but we do have people like him who are disgusted by sin, horrified by injustice, and feel compelled to speak up. Let me give you one example. Someone I've met, although I don't know him well, uh, a man named Gary Haugen. Gary was a, uh, is an attorney. He was working for the U.S. Department of Justice in the late 80s and early 90s and was placed in charge of the U.N.'s genocide investigation in Rwanda. 1994, he and a team went and gathered eyewitness testimony, physical evidence from nearly 100 mass graves and massacre sites across Rwanda, and they made a report. By 1997, with what he'd learned in Rwanda and other places around the world where injustice was taking place, 
he left the Justice Department and founded an organization called the International Justice Mission. IJM works to combat sex trafficking and child slavery, child sexual assault, police misconduct around the world. To date, they've um, assisted over 30,000 victims and worked to put hundreds of offenders behind bars. Now, one of the problems, though, about telling about a prophet like Gary Haugen is it's not always helpful for us because it seems so overwhelming. We're never going to be able to start an NGO that intervenes on such a massive scale. And other than sending a check, which would be good to do, um, you can't imagine taking on something so daunting. So if you're overwhelmed by the idea of being a capital P prophet, why don't you think about starting small with being a small P prophet? By looking around you, and if you see something wrong, doing what you can to remedy it. Dr. Martin Luther King, who I believe is a modern-day prophet, once said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So start with something small that you can do something about. Now again, next week, we're going to look at some of the things that Jeremiah pointed out in his world, idolatry, unrighteousness, injustice. And we'll look at how some of those problems persist today. Not just in our cultures, though, also in our lives. I think I've already said it, but prophets can be cranky. They can come off as scolds. That's why they often don't have many friends. In the book of Jeremiah, we find he had about three friends. But prophets in the mold of Jeremiah aren't self-righteous people. They, too, know that they're prone to the same maladies that they point out in the people around them. And sometimes the person they're calling out is themselves. So I've been thinking recently, how can we nurture our inner prophet? Because it's easy to look at a story like Jeremiah's and say, I can't relate to that. I've never heard God's voice. He's never touched my lips. He's never told me to start talking. The last thing I want to do today, though, is give you the idea that Jeremiah is a superhuman, super spiritual person that we can't relate to. Because in most ways, in fact, probably in almost every way, he was an ordinary guy. What made him so unusual was not his exceptional ability, but a sensitivity to God and a deep love for people. That's why some call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. You'll see in the graphics on the screen a tear coming out of the eye, Jeremiah. He was sad because of the spiritual state of the nation and what he learned would be coming. He was a man of deep emotions and clear-headedness. He was a man of courage who also had his fears. He trusted God fully even when he doubted. He was a true patriot who was not blind to the sins of his fellow citizens. He hated their sin, but he loved them deeply. He knew it was coming, yet he begged them to change their ways with the hope that God would alter his plans. And few of those qualities have anything to do with ability. Instead, they have to do with being so connected to God that what God cares about, we care about. Instead of ignoring the things that are wrong with our world, we need to do what Jeremiah did to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to the world around them, around us, to see what God sees and understand that nothing is too small that should not command our attention. Now, I realize that many of you are not the sort of rock-the-boat people. I would probably put myself in that category. Jeremiah wasn't either. He was a sensitive man with an entire career marked by doing what didn't come naturally. He didn't like being contentious and petulant and irascible, but that's how many perceived him. He was, as we'll see in a few weeks, considered by many to be a traitor. But eventually, later generations would reassess his legacy and view him as the one who pointed them to the truth and gave them hope. He didn't do any of this because he had superpowers. He was well aware of his inadequacies, yet trusted in God's sufficiency. That's why even today, as much, uh, it's as much who Jeremiah was 
as what he said that endears us to him. And it's the depth of his relationship with God that's more important than the fact that he got a few predictions right. So how do we develop the same kinds of sensitivities that Jeremiah had? Well, let me say that the most important way is for us to get close to God. It's the only way, and the only way to do that is to begin by spending time with him. Now, I'm going to sound like a broken record to some of you who've been around for a while, but probably every four to six weeks, I mention that the best way to get to know God is to spend time with him each day. And I usually suggest, just to demystify it and make it not feel overwhelming, that you consider starting, if you've never done it before, with about 10 minutes a day. Just take a Bible, and I would recommend turning to one of the biographies of Jesus. In the New Testament, the first four books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They just tell the story of Jesus' life, each from a little bit different perspective. The shortest of those is Mark. It's easy to read. Most Bibles, like the ones in your pew in front of you, um, have a... uh, a little paragraph, so you don't even have to read a full chapter. It can take just a couple of minutes. But read a section, think about what it says, what it means, and what it might mean to you. And then take a little time to pray. Ask God to help you put in practice what you just read, to pray for the needs that you have and the needs of others who are close to you, and then be on with your day. It could be in the morning, could be around lunchtime, it could be in the evening. Just find a time when it's quiet enough that you can set a time aside to spend with God. A second way to do this is to spend time with others who love God. Let me give you two ways. One Amy's already mentioned today, and that is a growth group. Growth group, 8 to 12 people or so who spend time every couple of weeks reading the Bible together, discussing it, and praying together. It's a great way to connect with others as well as to put yourself in proximity to, to other people who can encourage you to grow in your faith. And the second way to spend time with others who love God, it's going to sound a little self-serving, but it's to show up on Sunday. Now, I know that having a pastor tell you that church is important sounds, well, like what pastors are supposed to say. And, and I know, I've heard all the excuses. I can get as close to God by walking around Lake Harriet on a Sunday morning as I can by going to church. And the problem is it's not really true. Now, before you start thinking I'm gonna lay a guilt trip on you, let me just say that I understand the challenges of modern life. One of the things that's going on is that the frequency of church attendance is dropping. Once, many were in church three out of four or even four out of four Sundays a month. And now it's dropped to one out of two, one out of three, or even one out of four. And I get it. You're busy people. You're out of town from time to time. You have family obligations. And yet, it's very hard to remain close to God if you aren't connected regularly to a worship experience and to others who are pursuing God. So here's my encouragement to you. Don't go from zero to 60, but try to think about maybe increasing by one the number of times that you're in church in a month. So if you're typically here one out of four, uh, maybe one out of three. If you're here one out of three, make it one out of two, etc. But just increase a little bit how much you're here. When we put ourselves in proximity to God, to the Bible and to others who love God, it will change us and change our perspective. We'll learn to love the things that, love, the, the things that God loves, to care about the things God cares about, and to see people the way that God sees them. James in James 4.8 says, come near to God and he will come near to you. What he's saying really is that when we take steps toward God, he takes a giant step toward us. And then when we do that, there's a transformation process that takes place. Paul talks about this in Romans 12.2 when he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Jeremiah gets credit, historically, for predicting some fairly major geopolitical events. 
the defeat by the Babylonians, the 70-year exile in Babylon, and their eventual return. And he had some divine guidance to be able to make those calls. But even more importantly, Jeremiah knew God. He loved God's people as rebellious as they were. And God gave him insights into the world around him that others didn't have. And if we are connected to God, we too will be able to see the world with God's eyes. It will give us a sort of spiritual 2020 vision that others simply don't have. And it'll bring hope to this world when we can right the wrongs that are so prevalent around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this person, Jeremiah, this, this individual who lived 2,600 years ago, had important spiritual and uh, cultural insights that we sometimes crave today. Father, I pray that we would not just see this as an ancient story, but see this for all, how, all of how it may apply to our world today. We pray, Father, that you would help us to grow our own inner prophet, to know you so well that we can see the world around us the way you see it, to care about the things you care about, and to do the things that you would have us do. We pray that we would grow in these 11 weeks in understanding what it is you have for us in our world that Jeremiah did in his world so long ago. We pray this in Jesus' name.